Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloan, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we are going to bring you the story of Dixie Shanahan. Shanahan? Shanahan? I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Shanahan. Shanahan. And yeah, we'll get into the case. back to another round of bartending with Sloan and as we are getting closer and closer to Halloween I'm so excited (laughs) clearly I'm too excited today I'm gonna bring you a drink that I am calling queen of the damned just because it fits the season right and if you know anything about me I am here for a theme so for this drink you're gonna need 1.25 ounces of tequila 0.75 ounces of blackberry liqueur, two ounces of pomegranate juice, and two ounces of sweet and sour margarita mix, whatever you can get your hands on. Shake all of that together with ice, and then I am doing my drink with a black salted rim. You could also do like black baking sugar or just regular salt. However you want to do this, whatever makes your little heart happy. For me, I'm a salty little bitch. I'm a salty queen. So I'm going to do a black salt rim with this drink. Shake all of that stuff together. Pour it in your glass and enjoy. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Scott Shanahan married Dixie Schreiber in 1995. The couple lived in Defiance, Iowa, which is an amazing town name. (laughs) Just giving me all the liberties to be divine. Right. (laughs) But neighbors noticed right away how Scott would lose his temper if things didn't go his way. They called him a spoiled brat. I'll call him a toddler. Because that was what he reminded me of the entire time I was researching this. The couple lived with Scott's mother, Beverly Fesser, I think is how it's said. She died in 1997 and left Scott the house and about $150,000 as like an inheritance. The same year, Dixie filed a police report stating Scott had physically assaulted her. On May 31st, 1997, the couple was driving home from Council Bluffs, Iowa, when an argument began. Scott punched his wife in the face, bruising both Dixie's eyes and cutting her lip. All right, bro, I hope you have something coming to you, because (laughs) a big old middle finger. Yep. Dixie told police this wasn't the first time she had been beaten by her husband. So police arrested and charged Scott with domestic abuse assault. On June 23, 1997, he was convicted and sentenced to 30 days in jail with 28 days suspended. He was placed on probation for two years in order to attend counseling. 
Four months later, on September 8th, Dixie went to police again to report another assault by Scott that happened July 27, 1997. She claimed her husband had thrown her out and wouldn't let her take their baby. She feared he would try to flee with the baby. When she said she wouldn't leave without the baby and would call police, that's when Scott lost it. Dixie claimed he grabbed her by the hair and began to beat her with a metal object. She told police he threatened to kill her if she called police. So he's just, you know, this amazing husband. Why? Why? Like uh, where do I get me one? Sign me up for that. <laughs> Uh, Dixie said she was bleeding from the head and that Scott pulled all the phones out of the wall. Her reason for why she didn't report it sooner was because she couldn't get away long enough to report the assault. Dixie also revealed to police that she was two months pregnant with their second child and she feared the beatings would result in a miscarriage. Which in today's society would be a fucking like criminal offense a murder charge yeah scott was arrested that day and charged with second degree domestic abuse assault and on february 23rd 1998 he was charged and sentenced to two years in prison but his sentence was suspended so no prison sentence pretty much yeah. gotcha now, you would think Dixie would want, like, a tough punishment on her abuser, but no. During all of his arrests, she wrote letters to the judges asking for leniency, and Scott ended up serving a total of four days in jail and paid a $1,000 fine. He also attended more counseling and had to surrender his firearm. Ooh. So, I mean, right Ooh. I literally have in my notes insert eye roll here. <laughs> I was like, ugh. For two years, the sheriff's department heard nothing from or about Dixie. That all changed on October 6, 2000, when a friend called and was concerned for Dixie's well being. Brenda Johnson said she was scheduled to help Dixie pack up her things and like and so like she could move to Texas where her mm -hmm. family lived. Brenda said when she arrived at the house no one answered. She said the family car was parked outside and she grew worried. Her friend recalled a story Dixie had told her where Scott had tied Dixie up and left her in the basement. Police went to the house and got no answer. They retained a key and entered to find the whole family present and Dixie there with two black eyes. Scott was charged. But I bet she was safe. Oh, yeah. She was in good hands. Oh, yeah. She was probably, you know, just fine. Just ask him. She was just fine. Yeah. She sounds like she was just fine. Ugh. <laughs> uh. So, Scott was charged with third-degree domestic assault, but Dixie refused to cooperate and the charges were dis dismissed. She moved to Texas, but later returned to Iowa and reunited with her husband. Girl, just, just cut the cord. 
get out of there. God, I, I've never been in a relationship like this, but like, I just, it's so, so hard for me to understand why people go back to their abusers. It's just, <clears throat> I can say I, as the woman I am today, I can't understand it. But as the young woman that I was in high school who kept returning to somebody and he was not physically abusive to me, but he was neglectful and mentally abusive to abusive to me. And I just kept returning and returning and ret and it's because you feel like that's the only solution that you have. It's the only answer that you have. And I am not saying that to say that I know what these people go through and what these women go through whenever they're in these situations. Yeah. But I'm saying this to understand, to say that I understand the, like, pitfall that you have to be in to fall to that. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it baffles me every time. So, fast forward now to July 2003 when a concerned citizen called the Shelby County Sheriff's Office to look into the disappearance of Scott Shanahan. Probably not where you saw this going. On July 22nd, Deputy John Kelly went to the house and interviewed Dixie, and she said Scott had left her in August 2002 and moved to Atlantic, which was a town that was only 45 minutes away. She claimed she had not seen him since, but had talked to him in February 2003. She said he called to ask if, she, if he could be present for the birth of their third child. She told him no, and Scott got angry and threatened to get an attorney. The baby, a girl named Brittany, was born March 1st, 2003. Dixie also told Deputy Kelly that she had a new man in her life called Jeffrey Duty of Ida Grove, Iowa. Deputy Kelly told Dixie of some of the rumors going around town, like Scott being buried in the backyard, and she became angry and defensive. Dixie knew the rumors and denied she could do, like, that she had done anything wrong. Keep claiming innocence, girl. Stay. This gives me, like, goodbye, Earl-like vibes. <laughs> and I'm just like, uh... This is all I'm saying is I would be. Uh, this is the side I understand. <laughs> I would be Mary Beth. <laughs> She's the one that left, right, and then came back. I think Mary so. Yeah. Beth and Wanda were the best ever. Hold on. Wanda's the one that um, gets married to yeah. Earl. Yes. Yes. So I would be Mary Beth coming back <laughs> to town up. To <laughs> Let's say Wanda gets married. <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those times we need video. Right? <gasps> Sloan's gonna, like, freaking jump and, like, elbow the guy. <laughs> oh, man. I'm coming for you. Right. Don't fuck with my best friends. <clears throat> um, Do not fuck with my best friends. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
All right, so yes, she denied any wrongdoing. She's basically like, don't listen to those rumors. I haven't done anything. The next day, Dixie went to the station to inquire about the search for Scott and to see if she was being accused of any wrongdoing. Dixie was told she wasn't being accused and that they were just following up on a call asking about the well-being of Scott. But the day after, Sheriff Kavanaugh traveled to Defiance. He drove to the house and Dixie met him in the driveway. She told him that Scott had beat her before he left because he was mad about the pregnancy. Again, she didn't report it. Dixie told Kavanaugh that Scott had called around Christmas 2002 asking to get back together. Dixie was asked what money Scott was living off of, and she replied that he had withdrawn all the funds from an inheritance account with Prudential. The Shelby County Sheriff's Department tried to track down Scott through job searches, banking records, post-like office, anything like that. And a call to Chief Roger Murray of Atlantic Police Department. But it's all turned up nothing. He wasn't found in Atlantic. He wasn't found anywhere. <laughs> Which is very suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> right? Police began to investigate the money trail, however. You know, the whole money trail that she admitted the inheritance would, like, help track. Yeah, yeah. So, as I say, now we remember the money Scott had in inherited from his mother, the $150,000. Mm-hmm. Well, the family had been living off that money with barely any other income. By August 2002... There was less than $3,000 left. Mm. Checks began to bounce in August and September 2002. The thing with the checks was, yes, they had Scott's name on them, but the handwriting was, you know, very similar to that of Dixie's. You don't say. Yeah. Another red flag was that five more insufficient funds checks had been written out of Walmart in Denson, I think is how it's said. It's a t another town in Iowa. Mm -hmm. These checks were written between September 15th and 19th, which is well past the time Scott had vanished in August. Another weird occurrence was the selling of Scott's belongings by Dixie. She sold his tools and collection of older model cars, which, if you know anything about model cars... People that take the time to, you know, collect or even build them, those are like their babies. They're so fucking proud of those. You're not just going to leave them behind and whatnot. No. Also, Scott was said to be very possessive of his things, so the likelihood of him leaving this behind is, is like basically a zero chance. A neighbor... Emmett Wise, had, he had bought Scott's tractor from Dixie. He knew Scott would probably be upset, and he told Dixie if Scott returned, he would give back the tractor. Dixie assured him her husband would not be coming back. 
girl, girl, we got, we, we got to teach you. You need to be more discreet. <laughs> we got to teach you how to cover up your tracks a little better, I guess. I mean, no, FBI agent, I'm not plotting anything. <laughs> I don't know anything. I'm innocent. Oh, gosh. Uh, so, on October 20th, 2003, police searched the Shanahan home and questioned Dixie. She continued to maintain she knew nothing about her husband's whereabouts. Her car was impounded and she was taken to a friend's house and supposedly while there, she told her friend they're going to find him. Girl, <laughs> shut your freaking mouth. I'm just like, oh, this girl. She's falling apart. You're falling apart at the finish line, ma'am. While Dixie is at her friend's house, police are searching the residence. They quickly realize there was a room sealed off from the rest of the house. While clearing debris, such as folding chairs, children's toys, and boxes from the entranceway of the bedroom... They found a rolled-up towel underneath the bedroom door and a scented candle nearby. Investigators picked the lock, and when they opened the bedroom door, a stench filled the air. Underneath the bedsheets lay Scott Shanahan's body, decomposing, dead from an apparent wound in the back of his head. Girl. Girl. Could have done better. (laughs) Ugh, I'm just like, could have done a lot better. Ugh. Dixie was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Not our girl Dixie. Oh, yeah. Dixie. If you, you got the Southern name, but you definitely an Iowan. <laughs> no Southern woman gonna get caught like this. Uh, The small town of Defiance rallied around Dixie. She admitted to shooting Scott, but neighbors, knowing the years of spousal abuse she suffered, said her actions were justified. Yeah. (laughs) Take up for that bitch. Right. Dixie's bail was set at $15,000, and the community held fundraisers like bake sales to raise the money. According to Dixie Shanahan, she shot her husband in the head on October... Not October, on on August 30th, 2002, when she was pregnant with Brittany. According to her account, she woke up her two children, Zachary and Ashley, and asked her son to go into the bedroom and wake his father for breakfast. Scott told his son he didn't want to wake up yet, so Zachary left for school, and when Scott woke up, He woke up enraged that she had not woken him before his son left for school. Excuse the fuck out of me. Right? Isn't this what you wanted? You literally told your son you didn't want to get up. Things quickly turned violent and Scott started beating Dixie in the kitchen, punching her in the stomach. According to Dixie, Scott had wanted her to abort their third child. He ripped the phones out of all the sockets except in the bedroom, and Dixie tried to run down to her friend's house, 
but Scott dragged her by the hair back into the house. Then, according to Dixie, he grabbed a shotgun and went to the cupboard for two shells while Dixie lay on the ground. Then Scott is said to have left the kitchen and gone to the bedroom where he placed the gun on the side of the bed and laid down. Dixie then decided to go to the bedroom to make a phone call. When she entered the room, Scott moved and she felt like she was in danger, so she grabbed the shotgun and shot Scott in the back of the head. The prosecution tried to paint a picture of Dixie not as a woman who endured years of abuse, but instead as a jealous or scorned woman left out, sorry, left out of her mother-in-law's will and inheritance. They used that after his death, she continued to lie about his whereabouts and write checks in his name that she knew would bounce. When the retailers wrote to the Shanahan residents to inform them that the checks had bounced, she wrote back saying Scott had moved to Atlantic and she, would, she had no forwarding address. She did write the mortgage company, though, and added her name to the account and stated that she would be making all payments. The letter is dated October 16, 2002, and signed Scott Shanahan. So, again, not very uh, good at the uh, hiding. Hiding and uh, thinking. <laughs> I mean, I guess if anything, it just kind of proves that she just kind of went with what, like, occurred. It wasn't really a premeditated mm. thing, I guess you could say. The prosecution did say, yes, Dixie had been abused, but each time Scott was arrested, she would ask for leniency or dismissal. They said Dixie acted maliciously and in a premeditated fashion. Instead of leaving the home to remove herself from danger, she entered the bedroom. Prosecution called the lion's den. The prosecution also contended that the murder weapon was improperly loaded with one bullet that was the wrong size, causing the gun to jam after the first shot was fired. Thomas argued that Dixie Shanahan lied about her husband, a gun enthusiast, loading the weapon since he would not have made such a mistake. Now, yes, because we all know men do not make mistakes. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you led me there. I just said it. I know, but I'm just like, yes, because, you know. A man loading a gun would never make that mistake. Leg gasp. <laughs> so, represented by lawyer Greg Steensland. Uh, it's, it's a weird last name. But Dixie Shanahan claimed she fired the fatal shot out of self-defense. After years of abuse and death threats, defense attorneys said she had no choice if she wanted to protect herself and unborn child. As for leaving the body in the bedroom for more than a year, her attorney argued that Scott still had control over Dixie Shanahan. 
even after his death. Thirty witnesses were called from the town of Defiance. Dixie's co-workers, the Shanahan neighbors, the town folk all testified about witnessing Scott's rage or Dixie's uh, bruises. So, it's definitely a case that, like, just from researching, it feels like a lot of people really were like, this poor woman was abused and finally snapped. Which I definitely... She lasted longer than I would have. Cheers! Cheers! Cheers to the crazy white bitches! I say you hit me once. If I can't get myself back up, you best believe I got people that are gonna come and beat your ass. Me. (laughs) I'm first in line. Me. (laughs) Me. Uh, If you you ever raise a hand at me, you best... Hope you do enough that you keep me down. <laughs> it's like the TikTok. It's like, who are you calling if so-and-so beat your ass? I don't have to call anybody, motherfucker. I don't have to call anybody. I'm beating that ass myself. I said, you best believe you do enough that you keep me down. Because if not, I am coming for your ass. <laughs> the judge had to weigh whether to convict Dick- Dixie Shanahan... A first-degree murder but also was given the option of convicting her of lesser charges that include second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, or willful injury. A jury of seven men and five women deliberated for eight hours before finding Dixie Shanahan guilty of second-degree murder. Sparing her from the top count. She was set to serve at least 35 years before she is eligible for parole. Dixie Shanahan had turned down a plea bargain that would have set her free within a decade. Dixie, in an interview following her conviction, said she that if given the chance, she would still pull the trigger that killed her abusive husband. And I'd do it again. (laughs) I would. Right? Give me the chance. But recently when asked, she admits that at first she was angry, but now says that what she did was wrong. She said, I had no right to take his life. If she could do it again, she would get out and stay out. And that just, like we said, I think that speaks from just growing as a person. For sure. Like I said, I understand, like, you just, you get these feelings for somebody and, you know, you probably have them in your ear saying, oh my gosh, it won't happen again. I'm so sorry. I love you. I love you. I love you. And you just think, all right, see, this is what I'm used to. So you, you stay. And then shit happens again. And you either stay or you go. And I feel like I would, I won for once. Like I said, if you hit me once, I'm not the one that's going to stay around. No. But I understand it happens. We've all seen it before. Dixie left her husband three times on each occasion moving to Texas to live with her sister, 
But three times, Shanahan came back for her. Three times, she returned to the couple's defiance home, only to be beaten again. Or tied up with barbed wire in the basement. So when I first, like, saw, like, because remember I said how the friend had recalled the thing? It just said tied up. So then when I got to this point, I went, barbed wire? I just thought he was using rope. You tell me he using barbed wire? He's using actual fucking weapons. Are you fucking kidding me? Um, so yeah. Used barbed wire to tie her up and put her in the basement. Or have a shotgun pointed in her face. So, I mean, this woman went through, went it. through it. Like, it, uh, I don't blame you, ma'am. Mm-mm. When asked why she didn't leave, her response is like most victims. She thought she could change him. She thought she deserved it, and she didn't want to take her kid's father away from them. Which is another thing. You have to remember, she did have kids with this man. You, you want what you think is best for your kids, and in her mind, her them having their father was probably more in line of what she thought they needed than, like, what she needed. Right. So, to pass her time in prison, she tends the lawns and gardens. She joined an organization that makes items for children in need. She also started taking college correspondence courses in hopes to have a social work degree when she leaves. Um, it's also said that she wants to help other domestic violence victims. In 2007, in one of his final acts as governor, Tom Vilsack shortened the sentence for Dixie. The new ruling said Dixie had to serve a minimum of 10 years in prison. So, she was convicted in 2002 in 2007, she only had to do 10 years, so she should be out or be like close mm-hmm. to getting out if if my math is correct. But yeah, I was all over the place because I was just like, man, this man, he better have something coming to him. And then I found out like what she did, and I was just like, okay, okay, Dixie was snapped. Um, ooh, damn. And he then did. I was like, and then it got into, like, more of, like, the what he did, because they, like, sugar-coated it, and then after she was convicted, <laughs> that they were like, oh, here's, like, more details, and I'm like, well, damn, I would snap, too. Right. She lasted a lot longer than I would have. Right? I was like, at first, like, I saw, like, um, I was trying to find a crime from, like, an area we hadn't done. Mm-hmm. And I saw Iowa, and I was like, oh, we definitely have not done anything from Iowa. And then as I'm reading this, I was like, girl, I know this is from Iowa, but this is, like, straight out of, like, the South. Like, I'm, I'm picturing, like... You said Dixie, and I thought a Southern lady. Right? <laughs> but... That is the story of Dixie Lynn Shanahan. Like I said, I, I feel like she definitely, like, yes, what she did, not 
right, but also that's also an act of revenge there, ma'am. <laughs> I'd probably do the same thing. Amen. <laughs> if not worse. Right? Although, me, I would just love to, like, make him fear me. I would love to do enough damage to him to make him fear me anytime he would possibly see me. <laughs> Be like, oh shit, that's that crazy bitch. That's that yeah, crazy bitch. Yeah, you best go the opposite direction. <laughs> Don't fuck with me. <laughs> and you know what? Behind every crazy bitch, there's an even crazier bitch. <laughs> me, I'm the crazier bitch. How I am the only one that's married out of all of us, we don't fucking know. I think uh, I tricked Nathaniel. I was like, I mean, it's Nate. He was like, oh, you you don't care that I want to sit here in game? Put I really a ring didn't. on it. <laughs> I, re I really did not either. I care a little bit more now, but also like a lot of people that we work with, they're like, what does your husband think about you going off and doing all this with your girls? And I'm like, he just does not give a fuck. Cause I don't give a fuck about him playing video games. So like for us and our dynamic, it works really well because they like, have their time together that they make, like they plan out and stuff and they make sure they have a date night. But for the most part, and then, like, you you do what makes you happy, I do what makes me happy. Right. And then, like, also, like, we have our own, like, private time, and then we have our time with friends. I just choose to spend, like, in-time person friend time, and his friends are, like, through the computer. And then I also have my friends through the computer with, like, y'all and Instagram and all this other, like, just my other Instagram yeah. that I have and all that stuff. So, like... I don't know. I, I'm very well aware that my marriage is very unorthodox, but it works it, for me. It, it works. works for us. And I could not imagine being in another kind of marriage. Like It's also funny because I feel like Nate just accepts like and expects me to be here. <laughs> he literally will get home and he'll just be like, oh, hey, Trish. I'm like, hey. Last night, <laughs> last night, I didn't even tell him you were coming over. Like, I didn't. We've been planning on watching the Dahmer, the new Dahmer Netflix series for the past few days. And every day she's gotten off and I've been asleep and passed out and just fucking tired from this period, to be yes. honest. And um, so last night she was like, are we watching? And I was like, yeah. And I didn't even tell Nate because I was like, you know, I might end up passing out or, you know, it just something might happen. But no, instead she shows up. We're in there. We get through the first episode. He comes out for his cigarette and he goes, oh, hey, Trish, what's up? <laughs> yeah. And then today, by the time we got back here to, like, start recording from, like, doing our running around that, Sloan got here before me, and then, like, I show up. I'm literally, like, getting my stuff out of my car, and I'm, like, walking to, like, go up the stairs, and all of a sudden I hear a honk, like, a honk, and I was like, who the fuck is honking at me? Like, I don't know anybody else here. And I look, and it's Nate in his car, and he's, like, up against the window, and he's like, hey! <laughs> <laughs> like, waving, I was like... Oh, hey, Nate. <laughs> Natey Waitsy. That's Natey Waitsy. It's just so yes. funny. He definitely, like, he... he we joke I'm the second wife. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he is a very introverted type of person, and I am a very introverted extrovert or yes. extrovert introvert, depending on the day. And, like, it, it took us a while to hammer out that part of our relationship. Like... I will never forget. I think the moment that he kind of like it clicked with him was it was after I had to put my last dog down and um, like the way that he coped with it was he played video games all the time 
And he was getting upset because I had people over at our house every single night after work. And he's just like, you have these people over and you're not asking me. You're not asking for, for you know, my permission. And I'm like, you know, I understand that, you know, you, you want to be respected. But can you understand that I literally just lost my best friend in the world. And you're not out here comforting me. You're comforting, comforting yourself through your video games and your friends. And I'm sitting out here in the living room by myself watching the same fucking TV shows that I used to watch with my dog. And I get it. Like, yeah. it's my dog, but it's the dog that saved my life. And he was like, you know, I didn't I didn't think of it like that. And, like, ever since we had that conversation, we've never had another issue with me having people over. Because, like, he understands that while I don't like to be surrounded by people, I like to be surrounded by my people. Yes. But... This in a long way of saying <laughs> we <Squirrel>. all we <laughs> like I don't blame Dixie for snapping. Could she have possibly handled it in a better way? Yes. Could we all handle our problems in a better way? <laughs> Probably <laughs> yes. But yeah, I also like the judge would have probably been like, I don't wanna I don't want to charge this woman with first degree murder. Like, he was not a great guy. Also, I want to know who the concerned citizen was to report his ass missing. It's probably some mistress. His mama. <laughs> his mama was dead. His mama's mama. <laughs> but I'm just like, who was reporting this man missing? Because um, he don't sound like a great guy. So who was actually one to know where he was at? But like I said, that is the story of Dixie. Sorry for our little uh, off-tangent squirrel moment, but sorry, not sorry. <laughs> it's how we are. But with that being said, we will kick you off to our last call. Welcome back to another Last Call with Sloan. Today we're going to cover another Halloween classic movie. Ooh. Practical Magic. Yes. Number one, the Owens house was deemed so important to the film that while much of the film was shot on soundstage in California, a real house was built on the, for the film on parkland in San Juan Island in Washington. It was an architectural shell and the inside of the home was never completed and it was demolished immediately after filming. Ugh. What a waste. I would have paid to Ugh. live in that house. Although I don't want to live in Washington because they have the highest liquor tax. Uh, That's why everybody uh, drinks wine. Okay, but I would still live in Washington. I, I, would, I would pay the tax. I would. You say that. Two, because the house was built on parkland that had Native American heritage, no digging was allowed. Which was one reason the home was only a shell. This was also the reason the house was torn down as soon as filming was finished. I, okay, okay. They couldn't bury the body. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Am I right or am I right? <laughs> Me and you. Three, after the movie came out, production got a call from Barbara Streisand, who wanted to buy the house. Unfortunately, it wasn't a real house. Sorry, like Barbara. I said, like I said, I would have paid to live in that house. It was a beautiful house. Four, Sally's apothecary shop was filmed in the town of Coopville on Whidbey Island in Washington. In real life, the space is a bakery. I'll work there. Are y'all hiring? Hey. <laughs> Are y'all hiring? 
Five, in the final scene, most of the population of Coopville showed up to play townspeople watching the Owens women's annual Halloween performance. They were paid $40 per day to work as extras. I would have worked Sign for free. Sign me up. I would have done it for free. You get me by Sandra Bullock? I mean, come on. I know, right? Number six, director Griffin Dunn starred in the horror comedy An American Werewolf in London as Jack Goodman, an American backpacker who is killed by a werewolf and then appears to his friends as a ghost. Okay. Um, the next one, Dunn's sister, Dominique Dunn, was also an actress. Her big break was Poltergeist. The year it premiered on the day before Halloween, Dominique was strangled to death in her West Hollywood driveway by her ex-boyfriend, John Thomas Sweeney. He only served three and a half years in prison. The next one, the film's iconic soundtrack, is headlined by Stevie Nicks, our our queen, bow down, who used to promote her then new song, If You Ever Did Believe, and a new version of her song, Crystal. Both songs had Cheryl Crow singing backup vocals. I mean, come on. <laughs> a. <laughs> the next one. Another big song on Practical Magic soundtrack is Joni Mitchell's A Case of You, which is featured in the scene where Gilly drives all night to comfort a grieving Sally. A CD with the song and the script pages were sent to Nicole Kidman to convince her to sign on to the role. Could you imagine that movie without Nicole Kidman? I mean... She, somebody else could have played it, but like, yeah. Mm. Next one for the midnight margarita scene. Hey, hey. <laughs> Nicole Kidman actually brought some very bad tequila to the set, and the four women were actually drinking while filming. <laughs> For sure, that would be us. <laughs> the next one. Nicole Kidman's last project before Practical Magic was Eyes Wide Shut, written written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. She was used to doing 70 or 80 takes for each scene, while Sandra Bullock was used to doing the normal two or three. I mean, she also worked with her then-husband, Tom Cruise, who... Uh, don't get don't get started on Tom Cruise. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That can be a whole other episode. In the commentary, it stated that cast and crew heard supernatural noises while filming the coven scene at the end of the film. So I would say, like, if y'all were filming in Washington on the Native American land, yeah. I can see it. Yeah. But if you were filming in California, mm, I think you were in your heads. Right. Yeah. So Alice Huffman, who is uh, one of the actresses, she said, when I visited the stage for Practical Magic in Los Angeles, I realized the set designers had created a complete physical world outside of the imagination, just as I had. It was as if we were both novelists. The next fact, screen queen Camilla Bell plays young Sally Owens. Yep. Evan Rachel Wood plays Sally's daughter, Kylie. Young Sally cast a spell that was meant to prevent her from falling in love by focusing on a man who doesn't exist. One of the requirements in the spell is that the man will have one blue eye and one green eye. Gary Hallett has a condition called heterochromia iridum, which means he has two irises with different colors, which made him the perfect actor for that role. It's the same thing that Mila Kunin says. So it was not contacts. Right. 
Uh, number 15, the film was imagined as a darker take on the story, but Warner Brothers edited the film down to a lighter story it is today. I would love to see the darker version. Right? I mean, I'm not down for Practical Magic to be remade at all, because you cannot... You can't. It's, it's, it's just so good, the way it is. But if they were to remake it, I want to I see, want to the, see darker. the darker version. Kind of like Sabrina, the Netflix Sabrina. Yeah. Yes. All right. Number 16. It's implied by the ants' clothing that due to being witches, the Owens women live much long longer than normal people. I got that vibe watching the movie, but yeah. I also was kind of like, are they wearing those clothes to stand out? Right. To be the witches. 17. Jimmy Angelov was originally a regular Texas redneck, but the director rewrote the part as an Eastern European man after seeing Goran Viznik. Vis- yeah, I know who you're talking about, and that man. Every time I see him, I think of I think it was ER was what he was in. Maybe the one and- that they list here is Welcome to Sarajevo. Okay, which but- was a 1997 movie. Yeah, but I want to say he was a doctor on ER. And I remember being like, that is an attractive man. Well, he is actually Croatian-American, not Bulgarian. So he would not be, like, a gypsy. Yeah. Like he's portrayed in the movie. But I can absolutely see, like, Croatians are a beautiful race. Yes. Uh, the next one, the role represented a change for Sandra Bullock, who committed to giving up trying to make blockbusters after the keenulous Speed 2 cruise control movie failed at the box office. Instead, the actress promised to take only roles that really interested her. And, like, I have to say that this movie paid off. Oh, yeah. Once again, can't see the this movie without Nicole Kidman. I cannot see this movie without Sandra Bullock. Yes. Number 19, in one scene, the name of the island where the family lives is seen on a poster as Maria's Island, a reference to their ancestor, Maria Owens. Next fact, there really is a death watch beetle in folklore, which is said to predict the death of those who hear it. Oh, no. I I mean, that makes sense to me that that came from... Yeah. I'm just like, oh, no. (laughs) Right? The idea that the sisters share power by cutting their hands and becoming blood sisters is revisited in Ginger Snaps movie 2000. Before Michael's death scene, he is shown being followed by a black dog, a death omen in many cultures, including Harry Potter. Yes. I mean, that's definitely, as far as like my haunted series, it's definitely something that eventually I think I'm going to just kind of talk about. I don't remember there being a black dog in Practical Magic, so now we're going to have to watch that once we're done. Oh, darn. Yeah, I know, right? As we color our hair for for self-care. Yes. <laughs> it's a self-care kind of day, y'all. The next fact, Alice Hoffman's novel is very different from the movie. Gilly and Sally don't live with their aunts. There is no curse that kills their lovers. Antonia and Kylie's ages are switched. There are no midnight margaritas. <laughs> And it focuses way more on Antonia and Kylie and less on Francis and Bridget. 
24. Stockard Channing lied about being fluent in French because she wanted a free trip to Paris to record the French dubbing for international versions. She's always appeared in, like, the most random movies, but, like, every time she pops up, I tend to, like, love these movies. (laughs) Uh, uh, 25. A real witch served as a consultant on the film. When she became unhappy with her contract, she threatened to curse the film. Oh, God. The consultant told director Griffin Dunn, you're not going to buy me off with a hotel room. I want a percentage of the movie. I'm going to have my own practical magical cookbook. I want an additional $250,000. So clearly she knew this movie was going to be a hit. Oh, yeah. Which it is. She then sued Warner Brothers and left a voicemail for a producer where she was speaking in tongues. Dunn, oh, God. Dunn had the legal department pay her off and paid for an exorcism ceremony <laughs> to be performed on himself to get rid of the curse. Sir, just, just cleanse you yourself with an egg. <laughs> and then, like, if you do have the little signs of it, you, you just gotta go about, like, basically adding stuff to the, to the little egg to the make go away. Okay. Okay. It's okay. (laughs) Go on TikTok. You'll figure it out. Despite the consultant's antics, real witches love practical magic. I have to say, practical magic is like what got me intrigued. It's also our friend Crystal's like all-time favorite Favorite movie. movie. Shout out to my babe Crystal. I miss you. I miss you. But yes, she like literally... I remember, like, living with her and being like, can we have a practical magic night? We're like, I mean, of course. (laughs) I'm like, you don't even have to ask. It's, hey, I'm turning on practical magic. Get your ass in here and let's watch it. Number 27. For the scene where a possessed Nicole Kidman flops around on the floor, rubber floors were used to avoid injury. The director praised Kidman's acting during the scene, saying, quote, Her skin would go bright red from white to red to white in waves of, you know, purging. It was intense. And to that I say, I understand. She's a pale, pale woman. I mean. A pale, redheaded woman. Same. I'm like, it would not take much. No. I mean, it. I will say, though, because he says she goes from white to red to white. I can go from white to red real fucking quick. (laughs) But from red to white, (laughs) it's going to take me a little while. (laughs) I need some. I need some cooling down time. Oh, no. It scrolled up to the top. Oh, no. It's all going wrong. Not quite yet. Not quite yet. Give me a little bit longer. Um, That's where I was. All right. Yeah. So the next one is practical magic is often cited as one of the inspirations behind the cottage core trend. I mean... Have you seen that man? (laughs) Have you seen that man? Yeah. (laughs) Number 29. In 2004, a pilot called Sudbury, based on the novel's location of Sudbury, Massachusetts, was produced based on Practical Magic with Kim Delaney as Sally and Jerry Ryan as Gilly. The show wasn't picked up despite Sandra Bullock executive producing the pilot. That's a little that's a little surprising. I did not hear about any of that. When was this? 2004. I was going to say if they probably did now it'd probably get picked up. Oh, for sure, just like Hocus Pocus 2. 
Um, the next fact, in 2010, a prequel series was attempted for ABC Family, but it was never produced. That's even more shocking, because I feel like at that time, we were all yeah of age and excited, and I don't know. All right, and then my last fact for today is, in 2019, HBO ordered a pilot of Rules of Magic based on another Alice Hoffman book about the Owens family. The synopsis of this show was set in this 1960s New York City. The series follows three troubled siblings, Franny, Jet, and Vincent Owens, who wrestle with the abnormalities that have kept them isolated. But the tumultuous times unearth the extraordinary discovery that they are, in fact, descendants of a bloodline of witches. The two sisters will become the revered and sometimes feared aunts in practical magic, while their brother will leave an unexpected legacy. The show may have been derailed by the pandemic or faced other production issues. It's unknown whether it will ever be made or not. Sad day. Oh, sad day. We're, who, HBO, who do I need to talk to? Right? But, anyways, that is our case for today. Thank you for hanging out with us. You can find us on our socials. We have Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. They're all tequila she wrote across the board. You can also email us with any last calls or cocktails or... Case suggestions, anything of the sort, at tequilashewrote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon set up for as little as $2 a month. You get ad-free episodes and you get a bonus episode. We also have other tiers that give you even more content, such as Sloan's Ruining Paradise and My Haunted episodes. So if you would like to check out any of those... I think for Sloan's, it's like $5 a month. And then for mine, plus you'd get Sloan's with it, it's 10 So, I believe so. I believe that's Sounds what right. it is. <laughs> if it's wrong, I'm so sorry. It's been a while since we made the little price guideline thing. But definitely give it a check out. The easiest way to find us is by going to patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote and then you can also just go to our socials find our link tree and you'll get a direct link to it but yeah give it a check see if there's something you think we're missing let us know and i guess until then we shall see you next time thanks for riding on the hot mess express toot toot beep beep Thank <laughs> you.